welcome back to Beyond the Talk, a podcast formed in conjunction with the independently organized event, TEDxUF, determined to dive deeper into the talks you know and love. I'm Apeksha. And I'm Zoe. And today we are starting off our spring semester strong with a fantastic special guest. Uh, we are here with Paige Fry. Uh, she's a senior journalism student here at UF. She also holds the title of editor-in-chief of the Independent Florida Alligator. Um, before she was editor-in-chief, she was the paper's engagement managing editor and has also held roles as SG reporter, UF admin reporter, and freelance editor. Um, she's also been an intern at a variety of places, all of which go entirely over my head. The Chicago Tribune, the Gainesville Sun, and she's also worked with the Palm Beach Post. So welcome, Paige. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Did I do your intro right? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was all correct. Perfect. Was there any fake news in there? <laughs> the fact no. check is all there. Okay, good. Yeah, so we're here today. We wanted to talk a little bit about student-led media um, and the importance of it and how it differs from, quote-unquote, real-world media. (laughs) Um, So first and foremost, when did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? Well, I fell into journalism in high school. I had a friend who wanted to join the high school newspaper and Mm -hmm. asked me to apply with her. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do so, and I applied as a photographer, and I started my sophomore year of high school And I kind of worked my way up from photographer to photography manager and then to editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper my senior year. Mm -hmm. And then when applying to colleges, I decided to apply to the University of Florida because it had the best journalism school in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to stay in-state because of tuition cost. And then so I found myself here and decided to keep with journalism because for me, it really encapsulated a lot of ideas in terms of creativity and also learning something new every day mm-hmm. and being able to communicate with other people and be able to give a platform to people who need it mm-hmm. through my writing. And mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to pursue it and have stuck with it ever since. Awesome. And what made you specifically, because you do a lot of crime and criminal justice work, mm-hmm. um, what made you try to pursue that specifically? Yeah, so originally when I started here at UF, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a political journalism. I wanted to double major in political science and journalism and pursue political reporting. So I joined the Alligator and I started in summer 2016 as an SG reporter. Mm -hmm. I started doing some stuff over there and then I transitioned over to university administration and then found my way back to SG. And while covering that, I just realized that political reporting wasn't for me. And I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And I got my first internship at the Palm Beach Post. And they just assigned me to the breaking news and crime desk. Mm -hmm. So had me cover police reports, go out to scenes of shootings, you know, call up family members of those who were recently deceased. And I just realized that was exactly what I wanted to do. And so since then, I also served my internship at the Chicago Tribune, where I was also doing crime and criminal justice reporting. But I really like reporting on crime and criminal justice just because it's a very intricate topic. Some people see cops reporting as a very entry-level journalism position. Mm -hmm. A lot of famous reporters, their first job was doing an overnight cop shift. But if you go more into it, you just realize how technical the field is in terms of criminology behind it, law enforcement structures, Mm -hmm. why people commit crimes, why people are victimized. And you also have an element of systematic oppression and racism that go into crime and policing. And so all these topics are things that need to be reported on, Mm -hmm. even though they are difficult. But these people need a voice. Uh, Crime is also just very raw. Mm -hmm. No one can hide behind plan statements and spokespeople when you know an 11 year old is shot and killed mm-hmm. or when 17 people at a high school are shot and killed 
those are very real emotions mm -hmm. and you need to give those a platform where sometimes in politics it can be sometimes working under mm -hmm. yeah layers of statements and pre-planned speeches mm -hmm. And it's harder to like dig deep into that humanity where crime, it's all there for you. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of layers that I did not comprehend. <laughs> no, it's really cool. I'm curious as to if there was a specific story that really came, like helped you come to this realization, like realizing like crime and justice was something that you really wanted to pursue. Well, in retrospect, um, I'm from Sanford, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando, about 30 minutes northeast. And it's really only known for the Trayvon Martin shooting. Mm -hmm. And that had happened my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. So while reporting on crime, it made me kind of think back to those times where I was in a community where the national news was focused on a crime that had happened there. Mm -hmm. And it just makes you realize how the crime can reflect a community and what's going on there and how the community you know, reacts to that crime. Yeah. So that kind of made me think back to that. Um, and then just also reporting on stories in Palm Beach, um, such as there was a homeless man who was shot and killed after he gave a victim statement or a witness statement, I'm sorry, for another crime of an attempted homicide. Mm. And the man he gave the witness statement against after he got out of prison, he went and shot that man. Oh, wow stories like that mm -hmm. that's cool that you had like that you had a lot of experience even in college of all this like reporting and like having like real life issues that you get to not only like have as your own experiences but bring back to the alligator and help it grow as well so relating your experiences outside and through the alligator what's your day-to-day -day like in the alligator when whether it comes to reporting or photography etc are you talking about my current position yes okay um, so as editor-in-chief, we really s start the day where I speak to my desk editors and we talk about what stories our writers are going to be pursuing that day. Mm -hmm. We bounce story ideas off of each other and make sure everyone's good to go, um, make sure we get the right sources we need to talk to and kind of plan that out. For print nights, which are for us are Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays because we have the paper the following day, um, we'll come in at around 5 p.m. into the office and we'll plan out all the stories that are going to go into the paper that day, um, which are going to be on front page, which would be later in the paper, which are just going to be online only. And we'll plan that out, make sure everyone's on board with it. And then my desk editors will go and edit it. They'll send it to copy desk, who will check for fact checking and AP style and grammar. And then it will come back to me and my managing editors and we'll go through and make the final edits on the page and make sure the page layout looks good. Wow. So approximately how many hours go into one newspaper? A lot. A lot <laughs> Countless. Countless. <laughs> I don't know if I can put a number on it because it really, really it's a lot. We're working all day. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you have a lot of experience, obviously, with student publications and outside as well. Um, so do you see lots of differences when it does come down to like editing these pieces um, between student writers in terms of like bias and writers outside of the student sphere when it comes to things like bias and slants in their articles? In terms of bias and slants, everyone comes in with a bias, mm -hmm. who you are as a person. If you're a female, a male, you know, a non-binary person, and then your sexuality, your race, your ethnicity, these are all biases that we hold and that we go into when we're, we're, repo we're reporting. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't change versus a student journalist and a professional journalist. Mm -hmm. But while reporting, you know, you just have to recognize your bias 
And then when you're asking your questions, you need to make sure you're not asking leading questions. You need to make sure you're letting the source tell their side of the story, whether you just personally agree with them or not. It doesn't matter. In the story, you just need to be factual. You need to make sure you have both sides or every side to the issue and report on it thoroughly. And it goes through rounds of editing Mm -hmm. as well. Um, At least my desk editor, copy editor, and myself will go through all the stories. So there's layers of editing to check those biases and make sure it's not influencing the story too much. Mm How does biases affect promoting news in a way? Because I know in nowadays, clickbait is such a big part of our media and um, and how people almost consume news. It's based on the title, if it's like interesting enough or if it's almost sensational in a way. In your perspective, like how has that changed news or has it even changed news? So in re- reference to clickbait titles, With print journalism, which is also digital journalism, pretty much every print paper has an online website, a Twitter feed, a Facebook. We do need headlines that will get people to click on them. Mm -hmm. But the difference between clickbait and what we kind of refer to as a clickworthy title is that the title, a clickworthy title, delivers on what the title had promised. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we're saying these new restaurants are coming to Gainesville, find out here, you click on it, it's going to be a list of restaurants. It's not one of those just advertisements that may have something like, you can't believe what just happened here, Mm -hmm. and you click on it, and it's just like a picture of a dog or something. You know, (laughs) it's not, you're not getting, you're not delivering Mm -hmm. on that. That would be a clickbait type title. Okay. And also on the topic of clickbait versus clickworthy and kind of being able to sift through media, In the age of social media, I feel very old saying that, we find that people don't really know the distinction between, you know, what's important news, what you need to consume, need to consume, but what you should be consuming versus information that is not always factually correct, uh, things that are just there to get your emotions riled up. So when speaking to that, what do you think your role is um, in the promotion of things like media literacy and educating people on the importance of transparency? So back when people normally just consumed their news through newspapers, Mm -hmm. editors had a lot more responsibility in terms of gatekeeping on the paper. Mm -hmm. The editors would choose which stories were front page worthy, put those stories on the front, decide what's going to go in the back, and, you know, a reader reads through it. Mm -hmm. But when you're on a Twitter feed, you don't have that same concept. Every story is just going to be uploaded to the Twitter feed. You don't necessarily have that front page story you can't really differentiate between what would be a back page story and a front page story Mm -hmm. when it's all just going through your twitter feed or your facebook news feed so in that terms people just need to be able to recognize when something is coming from a legitimate news source Mm -hmm. like the new york times or the washington post or the associated press or your local newspapers like the tampa bay times gainesville sun miami herald versus just random Facebook pages Mm -hmm. or the Odyssey or the Medium that aren't edited and have that professionalism that these established news agencies do. Because every professional newspaper has a book of ethics that it always will hold itself to. Where online, anyone can be a journalism. Anyone can start a blog Mm -hmm. and just report whatever they want, have their own biases, and they might not have the fact-checking behind it that some of these other news organizations do. But sometimes it's difficult for people to be able to differentiate between the two. 
like the New York Times did a whole piece. It's an interactive piece where you go through and it will show you two different posts and you have to try to pick which one is the correct one, mm-hmm. which one is a real post where which one was a fake post right. that was pushed. And people had trouble differentiating yeah. between the two. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to establish media literacy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I actually wanted to ask about, I guess, accessibility when it comes down to, at least I think when it comes to news, a lot of the times people go towards social media simply because it's accessible. It's what it's already on their feed and they're already going to be on Facebook or they're already going to be on Instagram or Twitter or Reddit or whatever. And so seeing news on there just kind of like makes it easier for them to consume it. Um, So how do you think that news has found a way to create more accessibility for people as a whole? Because I think that's what the problem is nowadays and why people get so such biased news is because when you're scrolling through Facebook, you're going to get bustle or you're going to get BuzzFeed show up and like they're going to give you all like that's how we get our news in a way. And and so how has how has news really tried to shape its own, I guess, like what's environment, I guess, within social media? Yeah, I think that's something that the news industry is still struggling with and still trying to find its place because we're still shifting to changing the mindset of the print paper, putting a print paper out every day Mm -hmm. and then recognizing the print paper is just a product of that news. Everything should be online first before it ever hits print. Mm -hmm. But what a lot of news organizations are struggling to find an audience with is that we're not just competing with other newspapers now. You're competing with everything that is on someone's social media Mm -hmm. feed. Your, you know, jokes, videos, photos, your friends' statuses, it's not just news that's right. coming through your Twitter feed or Facebook. You're competing with all of these things. Right. But people still need to be informed. They need to know what's going on in their community and their government. And so journalists, there's still a need for them because otherwise there's no one checking our governments and the people in power. It is something that we're all still trying to figure out the best way to bring the news to the audience. A lot of newspapers are also experimenting with reaching out to other forms of social media like Reddit and Twitch and YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram stories. Yeah. Um, So newspapers are trying to reach out to the audience and find them where they already are and try to make sure that they have a space and people click on those stories and focus in on them. And also speaking about social media in regards to the alligator, um, are there certain aspects of like relatability that work more than others when you're trying to push things out on social media? Yeah, so the alligator obviously is a college paper. We're all, it's ran by college students. Mm -hmm. So we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of being relatable on our social media feeds where maybe the New York Times or the Washington Post may have more trouble doing. And we also are, since we are such a young newsroom, we've all, everyone has grown up with smartphones and social media, where I know at the Chicago Tribune, they're having trouble getting these veteran reporters who have been around for 30, 40 years, have them thinking about social media and engaging on on Twitter with the audience, mm-hmm. where for us, it, it's second nature. We, we know how to connect with them. Mm-hmm. So we have an easier time of going through and picking the right emojis and picking the right quotes to put on our Twitter captions Mm -hmm. than some professional news organizations may have. We also, we recently changed. So last year we used to be the big three, as we call it, is the editor-in-chief, 
the mm-hmm. digital managing editor and the engagement managing editor. But it used to be a print managing editor. We changed that to engagement managing editor last spring Mm -hmm. to focus specifically on social media because we cut back from print being five days a week to three, three days a week. So that was part of the movement to try to have us focus more on social. In the semester, we also established a audience engagement team, which is made up of an event planner, an engagement reporter, and a social media strategist who all work under our engagement managing editor to make sure we're strategizing our post as well as we can and that we're posting at optimal times with the right captions and SEO headlines Mm -hmm. and making sure that we're responding to our readers' comments and our messages because there's a lot more interaction on social media. People can comment right there and we can respond to our reader immediately. Back Mm -hmm. in the day, people would just have to mail in (laughs) you know, their comments on the story or email. Oh, the you old get, days. Yeah, we get <laughs> so instant old. feedback. So we always have to be interacting with the audience. Yeah, speaking of which, I saw recently, I guess not recently, recently, but like a bit ago, um, <laughs> that you guys had a video with President Ken Fox where you guys did almost like a carpool karaoke-esque video, which I thought was just genius. It was so <laughs> hilarious. And it was just like, it was so relatable and and also a good way for people to get to know our president. And is that something that you guys are hoping to do more, like push more into the the video sphere? Mm -hmm. So the the coffee video with President Fox, I owe that a lot to our former multimedia editor, Mackenzie Bem, Mm -hmm. I believe I pronounced her last name, Uh, but she was great. She came up with the idea and, you know, got in touch with President Fox and set the whole thing up. She's the one who's in the video speaking with him. So we hope to try to continue those sort of videos in the future. Um, We also changed, so we used to have three paid photographers and we switched one of the photographer position to a videographer position, specifically to try to incorporate more video. Nice, that's so cool. Are there any like ideas that you guys are already thinking about doing or anything we can anticipate? We're right now, we try to have videos with our feature Fridays. So today our feature Friday was on the Gainesville City Commission establishing a plastic ban that will go into effect later this year. I heard I about that. <laughs> yeah, so our videographer did a, a video to go with that story for a full package where it's just B-roll of, of the city with some text overlay of the important facts. So it's an e- easier way to digest the information to those who may not have time to read through the whole feature. That's really cool. Do you ever see the editor-in-chief position having more of a hand not that more of a hand but having their role entail more kind of like social media uh responsibilities yes we've definitely have to think more about social media than we ever had to in the past Mm -hmm. so i'm the first editor-in-chief who was previously an engagement managing editor because like i said before that it's a brand new position. I was only the third person to hold the position as an engagement managing editor, and I'm the first person to go from that position to Mm editor-in-chief. So I'm coming in with more of a background in social media um, than any of the other editor-in-chiefs before. But the role of editor-in-chief, you know, it's still difficult. We still have to think about what are newsworthy stories to put out. We still have to think about the print paper. We still have to think about the staff and managing the staff and making sure everyone is where they need where they need to be and just making sure staff relations are going well. Mm-hmm. So you, adding another layer of social media 
it's it's a lot, but it's important, and it's what we need to do in order to stay relevant and obtain a bigger readership. Um, I also wanted to talk to you, diving into more of like your career as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read an extensive amount of the pieces that you have written so far because I enjoy them. If anyone knows about the the articles that came out, the flood of articles that came out post uh, the duck boat sinking, I was not close at all. But anyway, so the duck boat sinking that happened in Missouri. And an article came by about a piece about a grandmother saving a little girl, and it popped up on my Facebook feed. Um, and come to find, that was actually Paige's article. So um, I did want to talk to you a bit about some of the pieces that you've written, because there are a lot of like high-profile cases that you have reported on. Are there any that stand out to you? Were there any that, you know, the moment of being in it, the moment of being reporting, that really struck you as something that, you know, I want to do this forever? Right. So... To talk specifically on the duck boat incident, so I was working a weekend shift at the Tribune and the duck boat incident had happened and we found out that some of the people who were involved were from Illinois. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to try to localize it if we could. Um, So my editor suggested calling some of the families who were from Illinois that were involved. Mm -hmm. So we have a way to search through public records to find phone numbers and email addresses of people and just cold call them. Mm -hmm. So I was cold calling a bunch of numbers and then someone picked up and it happened to be the, the mother of the girl who was involved in the duck boat incident. And the girl's grandmother had had died saving her. So I was able to talk to the mother um, who was actually very open about the situation and kind of just explained to me everything that was going on with her daughter and how they had to drive from Illinois over to Missouri to pick her up and how the grandmother and the daughter were just supposed to have a fun weekend together Mm -hmm. and kind of just giving me that information. And then I was able to write the story up from there. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's been a ton of stories that have touched me and that I think about a lot. Uh, So over the summer, we've kind of followed this one instance in Chicago where there was a shooting that had happened after um, a house party, I believe. Mm -hmm. So there was a party in the night and there was an argument that broke out and a group of people had left the house. And then once the party was getting out around 4 a.m., those people who had left had driven back around and then just started shooting at the crowd. I believe about seven people were shot. So the party, there was a lot of people, and so everyone's calling ambulances, and a bunch show up, and they're working triage on all the victims, and one of the victims was shot in the head, and the the EMTs thought he was dead, so they put a sheet over him, but he actually wasn't dead, and he was still breathing underneath it. Good God. And had lived for another 24 hours, but was under the sheet for an hour before Mm. paramedics came to him. So we followed that for a little bit um, and talked to the family of, of the teenager who eventually died after being on life support for another 24 hours or so. So that was something that I had thought about a lot mm-hmm. over there. And then we did another story about um, a woman in the south side of Chicago who was brutally killed in her apartment where she had been beaten and then her apartment lit on fire and, and had died. But I was able to connect with her friends and family, and she was a beloved bartender on the south side. And they had all believed it was this man that she had gone on some dates with who had killed her. Mm -hmm. So they were talking to Chicago police about it and trying to find the man. And eventually they did. Chicago police arrested the man who they had thought it was Mm -hmm. for the crime. Wow. So how does that 
I can't imagine constantly having stories like this to to digest mm-hmm. all the time. Like, how does that affect you? And like, how does it make you feel? You definitely have to take mental health breaks from it because it is a lot. And not everyone wants to hear about it either. Yeah. So if someone asked me about my day after I had covered about, you know, people literally being shot and killed. Mm-hmm. Not everyone wants to hear about it. It's not always a fun dinner topic. So sometimes you keep the stories to yourself. But the best thing is to have coworkers who are working similar stories and talking yeah. to them about it. And sometimes you have to make light of the situation. So sometimes we'll make jokes with each other about crime that had happened just to kind of lighten the mood. But it is a lot. And yeah, you just have to take breaks. You know, I know some crime reporters who also work second jobs as like nannies and dog sitters mm-hmm. to like be around children and more wholesome things mm-hmm. to yeah. like lift their spirits afterward. Yeah. Have you had any notable mentors who have given you advice about, you know, how to take care of yourself in situations like that? Well, I have had a ton of mentors. Mm-hmm. My main ones have been my former editors at my internships. So Tom Elia from the Palm Beach Post is one, mm-hmm. Mickey Anderson from the Gainesville Sun, um, and Dan Har from the Chicago Tribune. They're all fantastic mentors, and they still give me advice when needed. Uh, also, some former um, reporters who I worked with, like Annie Sweeney, who's a criminal justice reporter at the Tribune. Mm-hmm. I would talk to her at length about you know, different ideas with the criminal justice system and what was going on with it and about her experience because she's been reporting over there for for decades Mm -hmm. and is fantastic. What sorts of things have you learned that you didn't before about things like the criminal justice system through your reporting? Well, you learn that there isn't always a clear definition of a perpetrator and a victim. Mm -hmm. The the lines are often blurred. A lot of times the people who commit crimes earlier in their life were victims of circumstances or of other crimes themselves. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think of crime as the bad guy versus the good guy, and that's not always the case. There, there's more that goes into why people commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that you learned that lesson, especially in Chicago, what, you know, a, a hot topic location where people talk about things like this extensively, you know, the idea of, you know, like black on black crime and how it's centralized to Chicago. I'm sure you learned a lot about that while reporting there. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you how, because I know it's, you can never cover the entirety of a story and there's always going to be some side that you're missing or that you can't get. So what has your experience been with just finding as much as you can about a story and like, where have you felt like, oh, I can't, like, how do I make this better? How have you, what has your experience just been in like creating the entirety of a story and do you ever feel like you're dissatisfied with it? So to first touch on Chicago being highly politicized Mm -hmm. in terms of crime, um, that's something I've been really critical about for national publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll see them run a headline where it was X amount of people shot, X amount of people killed in Chicago and most violent weekend of the year. Mm -hmm. Those types of stories don't really serve to better the violence yeah. In Chicago or help the people there. Yeah. They just serve to keep politicizing it. Politicizing that idea that mm-hmm. people are shot and killed in Chicago and there's nothing that can be done to save them. Mm-hmm. Where that's not necessarily true. Where reporters at the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun Times and some of the other papers over there work every day to get to know the the people and the players in the city and what's actually being done 
there. Mm. And a lot of people also don't realize in Chicago, it's still a very racially divided city. Um, in the south and west side of Chicago, there's a lot of neighborhoods that are 95% African American or 95% um, Hispanic or Latinx mm-hmm. communities. Um, and people also don't realize in crime in general, people um, normally commit crimes against those who are your neighbors. Mm-hmm. So if you're living in a community where everyone there is African American, the crimes are going to be committed against African-Americans by African-Americans because that's who's in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's the same with the white communities, though, like on, on the north side of Chicago, where you have high percentages of, of white folks living there. Those crimes are going to be committed by white people toward white people. Mm-hmm. It, it's more rare that it's cross-race crime. So that's a lot about the politicalization of black-on-black crime. Has your experience with journalism and working for these newspapers almost made you critical of other journals or newspapers as a whole? Yeah, um, everyone's always critical (laughs) of journalism, including other journalists. Uh, Like, I know a lot of professors in the J school are always critical of the alligator Mm -hmm. (laughs) and giving me feedback on it. You can't be not critical of what you're reading, especially when you know what goes behind it Mm -hmm. as a journalist. Yeah. Like you, you become critical on what people decide to cover and what they decide to highlight from an event and the sources that they use. Um, so like sometimes journalism has problems with using only male sources and not getting a device um, gender mm-hmm. source or racial sources. So, you know, you have to be critical and make sure you're always trying to better yourself and getting diverse sources into your stories because otherwise it's not reflecting the community at hand. So with, in relation to that, what newspapers do you think do the best at, um, at creating the whole story? I always recommend people to read your local papers. Um, so if, like, if you live in Tampa or in that area, read the Tampa Bay Times. They're the ones that are going to be covering that community the best. Yeah. The national papers, Washington Post and New York Times, while they do a fantastic job at their reporting, but they're not covering those local issues. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so. I mean, they're not going to be covering every community and what's going on there. Sometimes national papers will do what we call like parachute reporting, mm-hmm. quote unquote, where if something big happens, like for, like the Parkland shooting, for example, they'll fly a, a reporter out in, to cover that area for however long that breaking news situation happened versus like the Parkland shooting, there was local papers there, like the Palm Beach Post and the Sun Sentinel and the Miami Herald, who know that area better than anyone else. A lot of those reporters grew up there and they understand the community and they can normally report on those stories better and understand it better because they know the people there Mm -hmm. versus the national reporters who are trying their best to file a story as quickly as possible and learn as much as they can, but they don't have that background of the community. So when you eventually leave the walls of UF and go off to find a career in journalism, would you ideally work for, you know, one of those big name publications, New York Times, Washington Post, or would you rather find something more localized? I'm just trying to find a job in mood. journalism. Yeah. Yep. Big mood. Big mood. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to find a job and um I rather report on what I find interesting and what I think is important at a decent publication versus just going to a big publication and maybe doing something that I don't necessarily have a passion for. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I also wanted, you know, 
you've been doing this for a, a little while now. Um, so for anyone who's out there who really wants to get into journalism, kind of uh, get their get their feet wet, I guess you could say, um, what advice do you have for those people? So those people who want to get into journalism, first you need to read read everything, mm-hmm. read national papers, read local papers, also read nonfiction and fiction books. Mm-hmm. You, I see a lot of journalism majors not read their local papers or have any idea what's even going on in the journalism community. Mm-hmm. And that really bewilders me <laughs> because I don't understand um, people who think they can be a journalist but then don't read the news. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So first you need to read and understand and be critical of that news and know what was a good story and what wasn't and think about why. Because uh, if you're not reading, then there's no way you can write a good story. And then second is to you know just pitch ideas Always be creative. Talk to your editor, and and write. You need to go out into the community. You need to talk to people. You can't be a journalist who only calls up their sources, who stays at their desk. Mm-hmm. You have to go out there and and really understand what's going on. So it's it's to read and be active and talk to people. Yeah, actually, um, I work with writers back home in Palm Beach and what we do is we work with student writers and we give them the same exact advice when it comes to any form of writing whether it be in journalism or it be in creative form Uh, we tell them that if you want to be a writer you have to read Mm. like if you've never like there there have been multiple students who say yeah I don't really read but I like write fan fiction and I'm like (laughs) what what do you mean like how can you know what is good writing if you've never read good writing, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm sure it goes the same way. Like, how do you know what's good journalism if you've never read journalism? Mm-hmm. So that's awesome that, you, that you're bringing that up because I think more people need to know that. Yeah, and one of the reporters who I worked with while at the Tribune, Pete Nickias, who is a great criminal justice reporter, he said the best advice he could give is to just work hard. You just always need to be working because any yeah. lack in your writing ability or any lack of your intelligence can always be made up with with hard work. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. you're not willing to put in that work, then there's no way you're going to grow and be a good journalist. And also, kind of in your opinion, obviously, there's, I, in my non-professional opinion, I would <laughs> assume that there is a lot more benefits to actually going out into the field and you know seeking out stories and writing them that way. Um, when it comes to people who maybe are seeking journalism, but also have these other interests, um, what kind of value do you think being in a classroom and learning about journalistic techniques that way, um, what does that bring to the forefront? So for me, I feel like most of what I've learned from journalism has been from my experience at the Alligator and internships Mm -hmm. versus my classes. Mm -hmm. I've had a few courses that have really helped me, um, like the reporting class, which everyone talks about if you talk to any journalism major. Yeah. (laughs) And um, also I took a data data journalism and data visualization courses with Professor Norm Lewis when he was here. and, And those really helped me out. But otherwise, I think the the best way to learn is to to do it, to go out there and work right for the Alligator or WFT or the Gainesville Sun mm-hmm. and, and work and get that real world experience, which is what I think the J School does well, because it, it does teach you, you know, those tools that you need where like the College of Liberal Arts, you learn more concepts, mm-hmm. you learn to write papers, but you're not necessarily learning the tools you need to perform your job on day to day task where the journalism school does that well. We're not mm-hmm. writing research papers. We're mm-hmm. going out and reporting on stories, which we would do in the field. Um, but sometimes people also forget in the field of journalism, there's 
a lot of positions in a newsroom that aren't the reporter positions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're now bringing on photographers, videographers, graphic designers, social media strategists, people like web page designers. Um, so there's a lot of positions in the newsroom that I think people need to be aware of and make sure that they're picking the best spot for them in the newsroom. It might not always be the reporter position, but that's when you think of journalism, you always think of a reporter. Yeah. yeah. Do you have specific advice when it comes to looking for internships or trying to join a newspaper? Are there certain skills that people should have that will help them get there? Mm-hmm. Um, so in journalism, what I was always taught was that your GPA doesn't ma- matter that much in terms of no one's going to hire someone who has a 4.0 GPA in journalism but has no clips mm-hmm. or no experience, like can't show that they write well. They're going to hire someone who has a lower GPA but has those clips and that experience and those connections mm-hmm. right. um, that can back them up. Um, not to say that you shouldn't do well in your classes. You should, <laughs> you should uh, try. <laughs> yes, you should definitely try. Um, but but your focus should be if you want to an internship, a reporting internship, you need to report. You need to show that you can do it. Um, and you need to talk to people. Um, like my first internship at the Palm Beach Post, I feel like I got in part because I knew a reporter who worked there and I said, hey, can can you help me out? Like, who do I need to talk to? Can I email them and ask if there's any positions open or what I need to do to make sure that I'm qualified enough to to make it there? And like the J School has a journalism career day. Everyone should go to that, make a resume, print out your clips and go talk to those employers who are hiring their interns and, and their starting reporters. And you need to talk to them and connect with them. But you're not going to get an internship if you're not writing and you're not trying to make those connections because journalism is a pretty small field. Everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. So you got to got to talk to them. Connections will get you far. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I it's interesting because I'm in the business school and we basically have the exact same mantra. It's like your GPA matters to a certain extent, mm-hmm. like get but a who you know gets you further, <laughs> but who you know and what you yeah. do matters so much more. Mm-hmm. Like the same thing you said, if you have experience on your resume, people are going to like you a lot more and it could be the smallest thing, but as long as you're working hard and you're doing something that impacts that organization, mm-hmm. that's all that matters. So that's interesting that you bring that up. And yeah, networking is so important. Mm-hmm. They never tell you that in high school. They like, everyone always tells you, like you go through high school and everyone's like, get a good GPA, be really smart, memorize everything for your test. And then you get to college and everyone's like, yeah, forget that. You need to completely change your life again. And you need to make sure that you know how to talk to people. And I'm like, I've been behind a book this whole time. Right. How am I supposed to do that? But yeah, yeah. it's so true. You need to know how to network with people and know how to connect Mm -hmm. um and I'm glad that you brought that up yeah it's funny too um with high school because I feel like in high school they always give you word counts on your paper yeah page counts will give you page counts so you're just like trying to stretch out your sentences as much as possible (laughs) oh yes so I'll get these freshman contributors writing these super long sentences because that's what they learned how to do in high school to make their page counts and in journalism yeah. it's like you try to have try to make it as short as possible mm-hmm. yeah so it's like me just chopping up the whole story and trying to teach them how to phrase their sentences in quicker ways <laughs> i can only imagine all these kids from ib knowing Those that they have to make babies. four thousand word papers <laughs> oh, and yeah. they're coming in like writing like it is essential to like blah blah blah, blah. but um but you're right it's it's like good that when you get to college, you get a lot more real world experience. Kind of speaking to that, how have you, I guess, like, how would you say 
your experience at the alligator compares to your quote unquote real world experience? Like, would you say it's the exact same or have there been lessons that you've learned in your real world that have impacted you more or vice versa? Has alligators taught you more? Well, the alligator is what has really given me my start to daily journalism and reporting. So at the alligator, I always tell my staff writers, I, I treat it as a journalism boot camp mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. And the alligator is really difficult just because we're really holding ourselves to professional standards, but people are still students. We're still learning and we're also still taking classes. I have some reporters who also work a second job. So people are really balancing a lot versus at my internships, I only had to focus on the internship. Mm -hmm. I didn't have other classes and your time schedule was more set in stone. Sometimes you would work over, but you know, you still came in at the beginning of the day and would go home versus the alligator. We're working in between classes. We're stepping out of class. We're trying to call sources in the middle of breaks and things like that. Um, So that's what makes the alligator difficult. But it it teaches you what you need to know and the basics of reporting and writing uh, versus my internships. You learn more from speaking with the editors and the reporters who have the experience and and talking to them about how they approach their sources and how they come up with story ideas and how they make sure that they're reporting on stories that matter and make a difference in the community. Mm -hmm. So being at the internships with professional journalists, I feel like helps you with your news sense and knowing what is newsworthy. Yeah, that's wild. People underestimate student publications so much, but you're doing so much and producing so much fantastic better. quality work yeah and it's also just like you're also a student you have <laughs> classes like you have a full course load so i have things to do <laughs> i have things to do so it's incredible that you guys are able to do so much like you're a full working newspaper yeah it's a lot mm-hmm. and we make mistakes um but we always own up to them we'll always run a correction with the story if something happens because mm-hmm. people are new and these it's maybe their first year or even semester actually writing stories and talking to sources Mm -hmm. for them. I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to ask about transparency. How significant has that been in the alligator? And just like in news as a whole, how important do you think transparency is? In journalism, we try to be as transparent as possible. We never withhold information. Uh, Everything that we publish is what we believe to be 100% true based off of our fact checking and our sources who we spoke to. And like I said, fact errors do happen, but if they do happen, we correct it as as soon as we see it. We'll go in the story, we'll correct it, and then we'll write the correction stating Mm -hmm. what was changed and updated with the story. Um, So the readers are always going to know, like if we messed up, what had happened. But I'm never going to post a story that I have no confidence in being correct. We're never going to intentionally post false information. Mm-hmm. Some We also try to stay away from anonymous sources as much as possible. The alligator, I can't even remember the last time we posted an anonymous source. Because yeah. nine times out of ten, that source wasn't super important to the story and can be replaced by someone who will give their name. Mm-hmm. name and last name, age, year, and major, because we need to make sure like that it's accountable, that yeah. that this isn't just the reporter coming up with this information. This is someone who is talking from their experience and position who gave us that information. Yeah. I also, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask about speak to critique a little bit, um, obviously important in the field of journalism. Um, so I don't think anyone starts out being really good at taking critique, but as you've 
both been critiqued multiple times and that you have been the one critiquing. Do you find yourself, are you still as tough on your own work? And what have you learned about, you know, the difference between actually giving constructive critique and just being rude? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in journalism, I always say you need to have thick skin Mm -hmm. or you're just not going to make it. Yeah. Um, Because one, I... Most journalists you speak to, they're their own biggest critic. They'll go through and, like, I'll, I'm almost scared to read stories after they're published because I'm afraid I'm going to see some grammatical mistake or AP-style mistake in the story. Mm-hmm. But you still read through it and you have to critique yourself. Um, but it's definitely hard in the beginning for a lot of people, and especially because I was the freelance editor at The Alligator uh, one semester, so I edited all of our contributing writers, people who mm-hmm. were just writing their first story. And I had you had to be tough on them. Yeah. Um, you had to tell them what was wrong, but you have to explain why, why you changed this. Because like I was kind of saying earlier, people go from writing these lengthy research papers to writing an article. It's a much different writing style, mm-hmm. um, and people aren't used to it. So you have to explain why you're making those changes and and the best way to write it for the reader to understand it quickly and move the reader along through the story. So it it is difficult to give critique sometimes to people who, like I said, may not have developed that thick skin yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I believe you still need to be tough because in journalism, the audience will be critical of what's what's happening. Right. So you, you always have to make sure everything's correct. I remember one time when I was covering student government, I wrote that one of the parties was wearing like a black T-shirt when they were actually wearing Navy T-shirts. And mm-hmm. I got chewed out by my editors for writing ac- the wrong color mm-hmm. shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you always have to be reliable, even with the small facts, like the color mm-hmm. of someone's T-shirt. It has yeah. to be correct. Yeah, it's also like helpful for real life just in general, like having a thick skin. So I'm sure it's also helped you in like various forms of your life. Because mm-hmm. I like I come from like a again, I come from like a creative writing standpoint, but it's the same thing. It's like you can't be too sensitive about that stuff mm-hmm. because it's just a part of the job. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the in a way, it's like made me a better person for it, because now when it comes to like any form of criticism, whether it be like my own piece of work or it's like me as a person, I don't take it as seriously. Well, I take it seriously, but I would hope I take it seriously. Um, But I don't like get too upset about it because I know it's coming from a place of growth. Yeah. Yeah. It's never a personal attack on someone. (laughs) Yeah. You're just taking it out on all those freshman journalism students. Is there anything throughout the rest of the semester that you're really excited for as editor-in-chief? I'm just excited uh, to, I'm always excited to see my writers grow Mm -hmm. and my editors grow throughout the semester. That's always the most rewarding thing is seeing people learn and fixing their mistakes and sending them off to their internships. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my editors already have their summer internships lined up for them. And I'm always so happy to see them go and and perform well. Mm -hmm. Um, So just seeing that growth in in my reporters and editors is is always the most rewarding thing for me. Awesome. awesome. All right. And with that positive note... (laughs) I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, so thank you so much to Paige for coming in and talking to us today. We appreciate you. So uh, much. Do you have any social media you want to do a quick drop on real quick? <laughs> well, thank you for having me, first off. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Paige, P-A-I-G-E-X, and then Fry, like a French fry, F-R-Y. Y'all nice. heard it right here. Go follow her right now. <laughs> All right. So thank you, as always, to the J School for letting us use this uh, prestigious space. Follow TEDxUF on all of our social media. We are constantly 
constantly posting. Apexia is now media director, so this is all coming straight from her, oh straight from gosh. her brain. Uh, tune in next week for another new episode of Beyond the Talk, and thank you so much for listening.